0: Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars Webinars and events. Details can be found on the website. We've got lots of weightlifting and powerlifting certifications coming up and some awesome webinars that we'll touch on here in a bit, so check out the website for that. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hannock and I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport, I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the clinical athlete continuing education director and coordinator, and a physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He's also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company, and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? I'm good, man. How are you? You feeling awake? Oh yeah, perky. Ready to go? Uh huh. I'm ready. Excellent. I had. You look uh, like it. Oh, thanks, man. Are you, are you being sarcastic? Is my hair like messed up or something? No, no, you look pretty good. I, I am being sarcastic, but you look alright. Oh, okay, yeah. uh, and we're also super excited to welcome welcome onto the show another Jared with two R's, <laughs> the more expensive version, Jared Boyd, who is a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, and track coach, who currently is in Maryland and just finished up at rehab to perform out there with Josh Funk. He was he was there for uh, a few years, but just accepted a new position in Virginia. With military special ops, so that's pretty cool. So, one, Jared, thank you for being on the show, and two, congrats on the amazing on the amazing new opportunity.
1: Uh, Thank you for you guys for allowing me to be on here. I'm super excited to to kind of talk to you guys today, and um, I just want to say I love that the stuff you guys have been putting out with just trying to shift the narrative. Uh, in regards to physical therapy, rehab, all things kind of sports and, and athletics. So um, I think you guys are doing some great work. But, yeah, man, um, just finished up at uh, Rehab to Perform, um, as you mentioned, with Josh Funk. And uh, that was a great, great chapter of, of my uh, professional career. Uh, it really allowed me to develop clinically. Uh, personally uh, and kind of just harness a little bit some of my uh, my thought process and and critical thinking skills. Uh, But, you know, this this kind of presented itself with this next opportunity kind of presented itself with the ability to have a little bit more uh, autonomy in regard to physical therapy um, with a lot of privileges in the military setting um, and and being able to kind of say, hey, how do I really blend even more the physical rehabilitation and physical preparation with the tactical population. So I'm super excited to be able to uh, kind of start this next endeavor.
0: That's awesome, man. You're going to have a, just a laboratory on the day-to-day to, to test, retest. Oh, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. And some crazy stories, I'm sure.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and you're going to be doing a webinar for us on September 8th, and, and that's titled Reconditioning the Injured Athlete, Principles over Methods. And we wanted to get you on the show to dig into that stuff a little bit here because there's a a lot there. Uh, But before we do that, can you tell our six listeners a little bit more (laughs) about yourself and what's led you to where you are today as as a clinician and a coach?
1: Yeah, so a little bit about me. Uh, I you know, attended uh, Virginia Commonwealth University for undergrad, uh, and a bachelor's in exercise science. And you know, from there, I knew that I wanted to either go the physical therapy or doctor of osteopathic medicine route. I really wasn't quite sure yet um, until I started to have a little bit uh, a little bit more uh, clinical or shadowing experiences, and I figured I think PT is the route I want to go. Um, seems like it had a little bit more. Uh, of the ability to build rapport with patients and have more of that one-on-one time. Uh, so I kind of went, I went that route. And, uh, from there went to Shenandoah university, which was really, really great opportunity because I was able to, uh, have a, you know, a a degree that was biased in rehab with physical therapy, but also a degree with an athletic training uh, background, more of the acute emergency medicine side of things. So being able to merge those two entities together uh, really allowed me to see from start to finish, what does that process look like from an athletic uh, standpoint? And so, you know, in school, I was I was afforded the opportunity to have some great clinical rotations as well, which I think continue to cultivate my mindset um, in regard to the sport or performance uh, realm. Um, so those included the University of Tennessee, um, the United States Air Force Academy, and, and EXOS. And so while they were all kind of uh, different, they had a lot of similarities, and the end goal was to get the specific population more so sports or tactical at the air force academy um, back to a specific um, goal which is to perform and perform with trying to minimize or or mitigate uh, injury but then also trying to maximize potential for performance so i really was able to to learn a lot in those particular settings and um, from there I actually, uh, you know, my first job was actually at this, this clinic that was not very sports specific. It was more manual therapy biased, uh, more of like the structural biomechanical lens. Um, and so from there, that further led me to say, hey, uh, I got to get out of here. I'm not be able to use my skill set. Uh, and, and I just don't see eye to eye with the, the owner. And so that's when I found a uh, rehab to perform, uh, worked there for about three years. And then again, was presented with the tactical, uh, athlete, um, physical therapy position.
0: Yeah. Sometimes even in a, in a position where you're not necessarily the happiest, that can be a good learning experience as well. Cause you can at least learn what you don't want.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Just so many narratives that I heard from. uh, It was it was a D.O. that owned the place, a doctor of osteopathic, and um, I was going to be you. Yeah, was, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, just the narratives and the beliefs and, and the some of the fear that he kind of instilled uh, with the the patients kind of just didn't sit well with me. And so that's what really made me kind of take a step back and say, hey, what do I want to do? What do I want to make sure that I don't emulate? Uh, and that's kind of what actually, you know, then led to me starting to figure out some of these principles that I wanted to abide by in, in clinical practice.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and of course, it's not based on the title of the professional. It's, it's, it's on the individual, so you can be a D.O. and still and still, you know, have principles that are rooted in science. So if a D.O. Absolutely. is one of our six listeners, don't take that personally. Uh, and were you, at, just out of curiosity, were you at VCU when uh, Shaka Smart was there and, and the basketball team was doing its thing?
1: Oh, man, it was amazing. I was there. It's funny, I was actually an R.A. as well. Oh, cool. I was an RA, yeah, with the, for the uh, for the basketball team. So that was that was quite an experience. It, it was wild uh, when we went to the Final Four. I bet. Uh, so your
0: your webinar title again is reconditioning the injured athlete, but principles over methods. And I wanted us to, to jump off the conversation with more of a general philosophical discussion on that concept. So. Can you give a, a synopsis on this principles over methods concept, what that means to you and why you think it's important?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think nowadays in this era, especially with uh, social media, there is an abundance of information that is readily available. Um, and, and it's a lot of it is, I think, kind of saturated with Um, Things that have a decreased intent or a lot of complexity. Um, And so, you know, when we look at lack of intent, high complexity, it kind of detracts from our ability to make appropriate decisions uh, and and not really have a a strong backbone, so to speak. Uh, And so... You know, principles for me mean, well, what what are the scientific or foundational or fundamental uh, premises that we're abiding by that help us to kind of navigate through the noise, or what I like to say to uh, curate the complexity, so to speak. Um, And so, you know, with that, uh, we're able to make a little bit more of these the ability to manipulate certain variables a little bit more strategically and, and understand to a better degree what. What outcomes we are trying to accomplish and what we have accomplished. Obviously, there's going to be a degree of uncertainty with any presentation. We we can't know with 100% authority, um, but I think with with having some type of a principle or blueprint in place, it allows you to become a little bit more repeatable in your process, or go back to the you know the drawing board and say, hey, what did I do um, throughout this process that wasn't the most beneficial or suitable for uh, that particular athlete or that particular patient. Um, you know, a good, a good uh, friend of mine and a coworker who's brilliant. Um, he he said, you know, if you're trying to. Make a house, create a house, and you don't have a blueprint or you don't have principles, and you happen to somehow create the house. Well, what's the chances that you're able to do it again? Probably very, very low because you didn't have the principles or the blueprint, Um, and the chances of succeeding the first time are are also going to be pretty slim as well. Um, But having those principles in place can can help you uh, make sure that that you're streamlining things a little bit more and keeps you accountable as a practitioner.
0: Would you say also it's kind of a why versus how conversation? Like if we're going to use a different analogy like a recipe where you can follow, you can memorize the recipe, but you don't have any flexibility if you want to experiment with a different ingredient or a different dose of a, of a certain ingredient or something like that. You've only got that one way. And when that one way doesn't work, or you or you need to incorporate some some flexibility within your method. You don't have that, but if you understand the principles of how the ing- ingredients interact with each other, why your uh, cooking cooking time for some ingredients is longer or shorter than another, you know stuff like that. So, so you've got the principles, and now you you can build in flexibility within your method. Is that somewhat of an accurate analogy?
1: Yes, definitely. It's, it's, I like that analogy a lot. And it's, it's almost as if um, if you don't have those principles, you become very myopic, um, so to speak, and, and, and you become very rigid in your attachments to certain methods. Um, and so then you limit your adaptability to variable situations. Um, let's say, you know, someone's a purist with and, and again, all these methods, I think, can, can have a, a place in um, treatment, um, depending on the situation and the scenario, but someone might be a purist, uh, FRC, and that's all they do, or SFMA, that's all they do, PRI, DNS, whatever, whatever method you want to use, um, but they they can't stray away from, from that. Um, again, they become myopic, and so I think if you're able to understand, well, what are my principles? I can, I can choose any particular method I like um, because it fits the scenario. Um, and, and I can be a little bit more fluid or have some maneuverability um, throughout the, the process. It's almost as if you know, you got a lot of tools or a lot of methods, but your organization is limited. So your toolbox itself isn't organized for all the tools that you have. So you never really know which one to pick and choose or plug and play with the individual or a specific presentation that you're presented with.
0: Yeah, you hear the, it's just another tool in my toolbox analogy used quite a bit and it's like well if if it's a this is the wrong tool or if it, you know if, it doesn't matter how many how many tools you got or if you don't know how to use them i was gonna say just not. that yeah you could have
2: like the fanciest toolbox ever but if you're just a crap handy person like that's not it doesn't <laughs> do you any any good really
1: yeah exactly
0: and you mentioned the the blueprint the blueprint analogy as well, well a blueprint is like a plan It doesn't necessarily tell you how how to build the structure, like you know the real nitty gritty. But that's maybe the if you understand the principles of 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 constructing the plan, then 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 you've got something going there. And again, you can be flexible. So I like to use these. I like talking through these analogies because I think it it helps provide a framework. And with with that, when we talk about reconditioning the injured athlete, or I.E. rehab versus performance training is it is it a versus performance training or how do you see those two worlds blending together do you see them as very as as the same are there are there differences where you're dichotomizing rehab and performance to some extent what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah, I think they are very much one of the same with a few considerations. I mean, you know, the biggest thing I think in regard to, you know, rehab or reconditioning as opposed to specifically training is that I look at them almost as a as a continual. Uh, and so there's going to be a little bit tighter parameters uh, with the reconditioning or rehabbing specific individual. Um, and that's going to be likely due to a, a, a higher um or lower excuse me tolerance um so they have higher sensitivity or irritability and so we we need a little bit more guardrails set in place to make sure that we don't uh, overly exceed their tolerance or their capacity because it's already lowered um, from the potential injury or or tissue insult Uh, and so you know for them how do we make sure that we're allocating the stress appropriately um, and we're being a little bit more strategic but again, that's a, that's a similar principle that you would have for uh, someone that's just training without an injury. We're going to still be relatively specific and strategic about how we manipulate certain variables so that we don't uh, increase or, or, or overtax them uh, in regard to their you know, envelope of function. Um, we, we don't want to have this structural failure. Uh, and, and so you know, I think the biggest thing is, is going to be manipulating those variables, but then also the mindset. That's going to be a huge thing. Uh, I think with your training, your mindset is a little different compared to when you're rehabbing. You're going to be a little bit more uh, apprehensive, potentially. Uh, and, and so we want to make sure that one of the principles are is to cultivate uh, this mindset or this optimism. And, and so I think we really need to harness that. Uh, when we're dealing with a, a an athlete that's injured as well, um, and and really create this environment to where they feel less threatened, and if I feel or perceive less threat, that I'm likely to to move a little bit more, have those movement options available for me to then be able to tolerate uh, the appropriate amount of of stress needed to try to induce a specific adaptation. Um, and so, you know, I try not to dichotomize them too much, but there is going to be you know this gradual escalating demand of stressors from uh, the injured athlete and then moving across the spectrum towards, okay, now we're training and we're really getting after it and we're more so worried about output as opposed to worried about the input of the localized tissue with the injured athlete.
0: I've seen it written and I generally subscribe to rehab as just training in the within the inconvenience of, of pain or injury. We could probably more recently say within the complexity of, of pain and injury and like that brings on a whole host of other factors, a lot of which you mentioned. You also mentioned the concept of envelope of function. And can, I wanna go into that a little bit more because I think it's a really, really useful framework for clinicians if they haven't heard of that. Can you talk a little bit about the envelope of function and what that means to you as a clinician And if that's an education point that you use in the rehab process with your athletes...
1: Oh yeah, huge education piece. I think education is going to be very valuable for uh, any any athlete. A lot of times, you know, it's funny we, we think oh, education is only going to be for uh, patients that are having persistent pain because we want to make sure we don't instill maladaptive thoughts and beliefs. But the same thing can happen for um, the the injured athlete that has something acute or subacute or that's younger as well. So um, you know, using those those educational resources and tools such as envelope of function can be valuable. Um, you know, to me, what it means is we we all have this relatively um, set, this relative set point of homeostasis um, with a little bit of, of, of allostasis as well, meaning certain variables that kind of change and move uh, that allow us to maintain uh, homeostatic set points. Um, and so if we have some disruption, um, with that, whether it 's an injury um, or or whether it 's just pain we 're going to likely then start to uh, lower our our homeostasis uh, or being able to perform things that we once were able to do without having any type of limitations or hesitation um, and so you know what we start to see is is that as the rehab process goes on, what we're trying to do is shift the the, the curve uh, back to the right, to where we're starting to increase how much that person can tolerate, can sustain, can output uh, without having any associated negative consequences. Um, you know, it's almost as if uh, the same same thing could be with uh, graded exposure. You know they're similar, Um, in a sense that again it's it's all about the specific adaptations to the to the imposed demands. Um, But we just have to be very strategic about those demands that we're imposing on the system because we know there's a a lower tolerance level uh, to them. So we don't want to overwhelm or overtax the system too fast, too soon. Um, That's kind of how I view the the envelope of of function kind of slow and steady uh, and, and having a little bit of some some parameters set forth.
0: Yeah, the education piece of the athletes just anchoring to a context that they can understand is is important, and the the envelope of function I really like because it's it's kind of it's easy to understand and it can be you can use a bucket if you if you want or whatever. Uh, implement that that holds a, a degree of, of capacity but envelope of mm-hmm. function coined by a guy named scott die back in the 90s which was originally with patellofemoral pain but like you mm-hmm. said it can be applied pretty much across the board and it's just like what is your tolerance and capacity at this moment and how can and we can improve that over time but it's i think it gives a framework to where you are now and where we want to be. And instead of comparing yourself to who you were as the athlete, because a lot of athletes will do that, you know, it's, well, I don't know why I got hurt this time. I've, I do that. I worked that I did that workout a hundred times, you know, or I've done this. And, and, to your point, you know, there's a whole lot of other factors that go into your envelope of function than just the training. Um, so I, I really, really like that. And, you talked about tolerance for a little bit, but I've, I've heard you talk about the heuristics that you use through the rehab process. And can you dig into, first of all, what is a heuristic?
1: Yeah.
0: And, 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 and secondly, what are these, what are these heuristics that you use through the rehab process and, and just the kind of different phases of that?
1: Yeah, so you know, heuristics are basically um, they their shortcuts or, or pathways, so to speak, to allow us to come up with a better decision or understanding of something that we're presented with quicker. And it's not always the best, I will say, because we can uh, potentially uh, miss certain variables. Um, but I think it allows you to bucket. It. And to a certain degree, yes, you're generalizing, but it allows you to bucket um, certain presentations. And then from there, you can kind of funnel uh, or filter a little bit more um, to really become a, uh, more strategic about what it is you're trying to accomplish or what the need is of that athlete at that time in that particular moment. Um, so that's what a, a, a heuristic is. It's almost as a, as it's just a bucketing of different categories and presentations. Um, and so... The the four heuristics of need that I've kind of allowed myself to uh, become a little bit more, um, I guess, biased with, because um, we all have biases, uh, are going to be uh, tolerance, capacity, competency, and variability. And so the definition that I've made for those uh, our tolerance uh, is, is going to be the ability of the tissue to uh, absorb, transfer, uh, or produce force, but making sure it's not exceeding its physiological limits that are potentially creating sensitivity and irritability. Uh, and so that's a little bit of the envelope of function that we just talked about, or that you're that graded exposure. We, we've kind of exceeded that, and, and so now we can't tolerate said activity or movement. Um, and this is really Similar to capacity, but the way that I differentiate it with capacity is because we have moderate to high symptoms prior to reaching or even exceeding our capacity. We haven't even had an output yet. Um, we we all, all we have is, is these symptoms that preclude us from being able to have any type of uh, adaptation occur by reaching capacity. Uh, capacity, you know, I would term as the ability to produce and sustain energy or or some degree of output uh, at an efficient rate and length dependent on the environmental uh, demands or the task. Um, So, you know, someone might present with things such as, uh, you know, tendinopathy. Um, You know, someone might present with uh, Achilles discomfort, uh, and it happens at the same time Time or the same mile with every run. And so to me, that depicts more of a limitation in their capacity. It's it's going to be something where there's low sustainability or a depletion prior to completion is what I kind of call it. And so, you know, the onset happens here all the time. Yes, it could be a tolerance thing as well, but to me, it's more of a capacity. They can't sustain output to meet the demands of their required or desired activities. Um, and then we, we look at Um, The next heuristic, so we have tolerance, we have have capacity, and then I have uh, variability, which is, you know, I look at it through the lens of the ability to uh, acquire and adapt to variable positions or have options or gears to choose from, again, depending on the the environment, the situation, the task that's at hand. Um, Someone, let's say a bodybuilder, might not need as much variability as perhaps a gymnast. So variability is also gonna be dictated by certain constraints um, that, that I need in order to allow me to be successful at whatever endeavor I choose. Um, I think a lot of people throw the term, you know, variability around is this, oh variability is just this great and, and it's innate and, and, and everyone needs it. Um, I think we all need it. But again, it's to, at a certain degree uh, that we need it in order to uh, be successful um, at what it is we're trying to accomplish. Uh, and so, you know, with variability, certain subjective or objective uh, findings or information that I'm hearing or looking for would be just habitual tendencies that someone might have environmentally, potentially, um, or even uh, habitual tendencies from a, a standpoint of, hey, they just have this redundancy and, and activity, and we need to uh, kind of reduce the monotony and allow them to explore different different planes and different patterns um, or a little bit of novelty, but still that novelty is going to be uh, prefaced with some some specific intent, as opposed to novelty just for the sake of novelty. And it's complex, but it doesn't have any specific. Uh, it, it doesn't warrant any specific adaptation. Um, and then lastly, we look at uh, competency. So this is, you know, where it gets a little. Complicated, I guess, or it could get complicated, and people could argue. Well, well what does competency mean? Uh, to me, it means proficient movement with optimal uh, outcomes. So then you say, well, you know, we can get even, I guess, a little bit more uh, specific and say, well, what what is optimal? You know, to me, optimal is what's the best solution to a movement problem um, for that particular individual. Uh, and so we're, you know, sometimes optimal might require constraints uh, that is more suitable for the solution that person needs. Uh, so you know, competency gets a little bit more challenging. But for example, that might be someone who has never uh, done a powerlifting move, and they're just not competent uh, at it, uh, and, and they need a little bit more of a hey, let's let's try to go back or regress a little bit and start to, to build you back up to give you the layers or the constraints you need in order to be a little bit more proficient or in- optimize your, um, your, your movement with this particular exercise. Um, and so, you know, those are the four heuristics that I think allow me to bucket individuals, uh, and then from there, obviously, you can filter even more and determine what it is that they that they need um, from those from those buckets.
2: With competency, I really like that you included um, the the word constraints because it sounds like you um, you we're including within that or within that idea, um, you know, or rather, we're not saying that there needs to be you know one particular way for someone to. To do a thing, and there's not, a, you know, perhaps a singular solution for a movement problem. Because if we're talking about athletes, <clears throat> almost irrespective of what the the sport or the activity is, they are going to be a, a myriad of situations that they might find themselves in. And we, you know, we've talked about dynamic systems and um, you know, motor skill acquisition a few times in the last few months. Um, but with the you know, the highly skilled athletes, they've got lots of Movement variability more so than say your intermediate mm-hmm. athletes, just because they've got more solutions available to them, and you can train that, you know, to a large extent just by manipulating the constraints of the task, uh, the tasks that they're subjected to, um, which then probably goes a long way in terms of equipping them to 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 feel confident and then also to perform, you know, to, as well as they can in, in a in most situations they might find themselves in
1: yeah they have the ability to accommodate to an ever changing ever shifting environment and, and regulate um, potential disturbances or perturbations and, and still come up with a optimal or ideal um, uh, solution you know and, and it might not be something uh, that is entirely efficient so you know I look at efficient, it's just the cost of, of doing business. Um, It might not be entirely efficient, but it's still, for them, optimal in regard to, hey, I maximize my potential as best I could uh, while knowing that, hey, there was a little bit of a a disturbance or or something happened that I would have rather not. But I had the, uh, the right amount of adaptability and variability to do so.
0: I see competency and variability as very intertwined and related. As you as you mentioned, competency can almost be distilled down to just consistent outcomes. But but consistent outcomes, again, you can you can get the outcome a myriad of ways. And there's a phrase by one of the forefathers of of motor acquisition, Nikolai Bernstein, who was, who would always say, uh, "Repetition without repetition." So a skill mm-hmm. a skilled blacksmith is consistent. In the outcome, but no repetition looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And you can think about skilled athletes where they can they can achieve the outcome in a myriad of different ways. And for if we talk about this clinically, typically athletes are coming to us and their their variability is decreased. And maybe and their outcomes are variable as well. Typically. But sometimes, mm-hmm. and then they can progress, perhaps through the initial stages of rehab, where now we can we can, like you said, Jared, we can constrain the task to a point where we can get consistent outcomes, but not in a, not in variable scenarios. Their variability is still low. Their their competency is maybe getting a little bit better within the constraints, be it, be it a range of motion constraint or a speed constraint. Maybe we've had to slow the movement down uh use less load that t- or like more and more top down instruction where it's more of a structured activity as opposed to, to their perception you know kind of driving the action that type of thing but then we can start to take away those constraints a little bit which I don't want to jump too far ahead but you've talked about phases of rehab starting with control and progressing to chaos and I want to talk a little mm. bit about that but it sounds like we're kind of getting into that so I like when you were you were kind of tying in competency there with with variability, and I also want to talk about tolerance versus capacity because when we we have these philosophical discussions for some people it can be hard to like how is this clinically relevant but right. you, you gave an example that I think is is totally relevant I think tolerance versus capacity is relevant in most clinical situations, so it was it was the runner who can't tolerate running at all. So as soon as they start to do anything more than a walk, let's say patellar tendinopathy or Achilles tendinopathy or something like that, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. as soon as they, as soon as they transition into that task, they feel their irritability or or their sensitivity or whatever they're coming to you for starts to appear versus a capacity issue where they can do their thing and their, their lack of tolerance doesn't show, until a certain point in their capacity, but they can actually push the threshold of their capacity before they become intolerant. So there's an interplay there. So you have these two yes. athletes and you have, they have different thresholds essentially. Can, can you, I know this is kind of like hypotheticals, but can you maybe talk a little bit about how the initial rehab process would be different for those two athletes in terms of maybe how you would allow them to program or allow them to go through their activity just on the day-to-day and also what you would be doing in the clinic for somebody who's got a very low tolerance, not even touching their capacity versus someone who their tolerance is higher and they can they can push into their capacity a little bit more. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it makes complete sense. Absolutely. I, I love that question. Um, so for, for tolerance, for me, it would be more of, a, again, it's along the lines of, okay, they've, they've uh, exceeded their envelope of function, so to speak. It's very, very low. Uh, and so... I wanna use some level of load uh, for induction of graded exposure. Um, If we're speaking of specifically a tendon, uh, we we know that load is the language of of tendons. And so if we can uh, manipulate load enough to where we can start to induce stress and the stress that they can tolerate, um, for me, I'm using higher uh, frequency, um, because I want them to get more dosage throughout the day of that particular stimulus um, in order to hopefully try to create an adaptation. And it might not be at that point um, for this the, the low-tolerance individual. It might not be at a point where we're creating true adaptation. Um, to the, the tissue, but what we might be doing is creating an adaptation um, to the brain in regard to taking off um, the threat perception, so to speak, and becoming less apprehensive to that, that stimulus. So for that individual, it might be, uh, let's find a movement Um, and a load that you can tolerate. A lot of times what I've seen and some of the research points to this, although it is kind of changing a little bit now, uh, is that isometrics can be relatively beneficial um, for someone that has low tolerance level. Let's just perform, uh, again, it depends on, is it insertional, is it insertional? Um, or mid portion versus insertional but you know let, let's let's choose a height that you can tolerate let's choose a length of time that you can tolerate that load and then i want you to do that um, maybe twice preferably i'd like to get it three times because again i'm more of a, of a frequency as opposed to just one dosage a day um, and, and i want to see how they do with that and what the 24 hour period looks like for them um, so when they come back in do we need to um, titrate anything a little bit because you know, I always use the the analogy for them that movement and and load is medicine. We just have to make sure that we get the dosage correctly. We might we might go over and that's okay. We know what to do and to kind of recalibrate things if we go over. If it's under, uh then we can push it up just a little bit. But we want to find that sweet spot that you're able to tolerate, um that your body can regulate well. If we're looking at capacity, um then for that individual, um I'm looking at probably uh, manipulating just a little bit uh, their current workout and and what I want to do is say hey let's uh, reduce your uh, workload just a little bit and and we're going to reduce things we're going to increase your um, maybe your biomotor, uh, quality. So, you know, for that individual, um, I might just look at overall either muscular strength or endurance. I would do a, a heel rise test, um, which is looking at, uh, 30 beats per minute, uh, of a of a heel raise, uh, and they're going to do that for around 25 to 30 reps. Um, there are some specific norms, um, but I kind of got that one from, uh, Chris Johnson, um, and that allows me to see, you know, what what is the capacity on the involved versus the uninvolved limb? And from there, how do I become a little bit more specific about the dosage that I'm giving them in regard to the um, the, the the load as well as the repetitions in the set, so the overall uh, volume? Um, and then for that individual, I want to bridge the gap from where they are now um, to getting back into – surpassing their running mileage by hopefully getting elastic as soon as I can. I'm thinking of if it's tendon related, they have a lack of uh, sustainable elasticity. And if I can start to do a little bit more rapid elastic motions sooner, um, some, some research has been shown that that actually can induce a little bit more of the, the, the collagen synthesis So. um, Again, we don't have to have that in order to decrease discomfort and increase capacity, but you know I think having the ability to sustain uh, repeatable elasticity improves capacity of a of a tendon, and so that might be doing uh, prescribed pogo exercises or jump roping uh, exercises as well, as opposed to only doing heavy isometrics or isotonic work to the the tendon. I want to make things that have a little bit better carry over to their their task
0: and yeah so pogoing or jump ropes or even just pretending you're jump roping but just that's basically a pogo mm-hmm. that to me when you said before it's ver- you vary the task, novelty is powerful mm-hmm. but it's not very it's not variability for the sake of variability mm-hmm. and that's what I think we get into in the rehab world a lot, where you see, you see exercises that look difficult just because there's like four things involved and you're like juggling and you're on the BOSU ball you know, <laughs> and, you're, and you've got the, and then you've got uh, you're, maybe you're wearing glasses that, that obstruct your vision and there's like a whole... And you're whole on fire. Stuff. You're on fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but let's say pogoing. Very simple exercise, but you've you've constrained the task to be able to control the dose, because somebody could could say, well, can't I just run? Well, yes, but but you've already mentioned Jared that you're controlling their workload, and as far as that's concerned as well. But running is a is less constrained; it's less controllable. The do, like you're not there controlling their cadence and really mm-hmm. controlling their mileage and controlling the terrain. All of these little things that factor into the actual stress of that, of that dosage, of that bout. But something like pogoing or just jump ropes, you can be very, very controlled with the dosage and you can pick an arbitrary dose and then just base your next decision on how they tolerated that dosage. But to me, that's an, would that be an example? That's a, it's a varied task, but it's specific. To the qualities that you're trying to develop for their goal activity.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's yeah allowing them to adapt uh, to that particular stimulus, and it's varied enough as well um, to where it's not it's not specific. Um, It's not specifically the the task, but it it has enough and it emulates enough of the qualities that will bridge the gap and be able to transition them back to their task without there being this huge spike um, in their uh, load tolerance um, or a huge spike in just the quote-unquote novelty of the the activity because it's like oh man i haven't done this in a a long time well no you actually have we've just changed it a little bit but the you know the pogo has great carryover because we're we're looking at the elasticity the ground contact times things of that nature um that mimic the similar situations that you're going to be in when you're when you're running and i like double leg pogos as well because i'm thinking of well two points of contact as opposed to one point of contact with, uh, with running. So, you know, we have to count for more force being induced onto the, the tendon as opposed to, um, double leg where force is going to be going across, uh, both, both limbs upon contact with the ground.
2: Oh, just, yeah. just, oh go ahead. Right. Sorry. No, no, you go. I was going to say to rip off of the idea of, um, variability, but not just for variability sake, uh, and how, especially when it comes to social media and the idea of rehab that that a lot of people are exposed to where we've got these seemingly fancy and impressive exercises that may not always have, you know, either a very clear or a very applicable rationale Um, that seems like in order for, or it seems like in order for us to have the outcomes or um, reasonable effectiveness with our clients using, using things that, you know, are variable, but maybe not super fancy or super sexy. We probably need to set that expectation from the start, which Jared, you, you, you mentioned that with your point about titrating exercise and, you know, communicating that to, to our clients saying like, we might overdo the dosage. Here's how we're going to manage this. You know, we got a lot of things that we can adjust, but also I think that if we, if we communicate to our clients that we don't have to get overly fancy, um, uh, and by the same token, as clinicians and clients, we'll be putting our heads together uh, to figure out are there any sort of bases that we're not covering? Are there any skills or um, you know task demands that we haven't exposed you to yet? If we can make sure that we're doing all of that, that, that's what we need to do. We don't need to necessarily go above and beyond just because the return on investment in terms of time and effort may not be there. Um, but I think it's part of the challenge that we're dealing with as clinicians, because many people are coming in to see us with that expectation, either explicitly or implicitly, sort of in the back of their minds, just because they've seen it on the ground.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I love I love everything you just said uh, it really resonates with me. And a lot of it is. You know, I think people really gravitate towards complexity, both on the clinician practitioner end, but then also uh, on the consumer end as well. Um, I think from a, a clinician perspective, it's more of like a, a pride or this uh, we're trying to um, kind of harness our, to a certain degree, egocentric uh state. And so we feel like, okay, well, if I'm more complex, it means that I'm I'm likely uh, smarter. I'm I'm like the savior, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, with that though, it kind of detracts, as you said, from our ability to have this very specific stimulus or, or stress that we're placing on a, on a tissue and understanding the outcome. Um, and so we have less intent, um, if we, have a lot of complexity and, and it's kind of superfluous uh with no specific meaning or no purposeful meaning um to it so yeah i think it's all about expectations and, and having that conversation uh with the the patient and saying hey this is is the the plan of care that we're going to go with uh, we we understand our principles and i tell this to my athletes all the time we, we understand our principles um if you get a little bit of discomfort a little bit of sensitivity then I don't I don't want you to be alarmed. I'm not alarmed by it. Uh, we're just going to adjust the dosage appropriately, uh, as you said, Quinn. And and then um, you know we'll, we'll continue to progress down the continuum. The continuum um, in regard to you know manipulating other variables such as velocity or uh, such as uh, making things unpredictable or making things again looking at like that that control to chaos continuum, whatever it is that, that they need.
2: Totally. Yeah, I'd argue that it takes a more skilled clinician to sell people on the simplistic but effective approach, as opposed to the the clinician who's using a whole bunch of newfangled things that that are flashy and shiny that people just you know might perceive more value from, but it may not actually be there in in, uh, yeah. in practice.
1: Yeah, they're devoid of any particular um, uh, outcomes that I, I just don't think are. Uh, or, or maybe maybe not outcomes is the best word, but they're devoid of um, the very strategic uh, influences to the tissue or to the organism that are going to be conducive for durability, longevity, adaptability, whatever you want to call it.
0: When you've both talked about, if we go back to the example of pogo exercise, and you've got actually, you you've posted about this exercise, you've got a, you've got videos on your Instagram yes. about this thing, so that can be modified and varied. So there that's a it's a simple exercise, but there's a myriad of different ways to vary that stimulus. You can change the vectors like you already mentioned, mm-hmm. going single leg, double leg, you can put a sprint at the end or like a yeah. you know, some type of, of crossover sprint or, or whatever you want. Um, so starting starting simplistic and, and constraining the task and then layering on complexity within that is still something that we can do so it doesn't all have to be snooze and snooze and exercises and just like super boring mundane things but it's like what we've mentioned if you're setting the groundwork education wise right up front then at least the expectations are met that like you know we got to put the work in you know it's kind of that blue collar mentality Going into some of these, some of these phases, I I really wanted to talk to you about this is the phases of rehab as a contextual framework to help you dampen some of the noise Mm -hmm. and focus on the relevant variables for the individual athlete for their particular goal activities. Can you talk a little bit about What these phases are or how you conceptualize them over the course of a rehab process? And then within that, can you talk about how key performance indicators or KPIs guide your progression as you go through these different phases?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, phases of rehab, and like you said, I try to make sure <clears throat> that I'm thinking, but also relate this to the, the athlete, that they understand this isn't a, a black and white. There's going to be some gray area in there, um, and there's going to be uh, a little bit of a degree of uncertainty just because of the fact that the human organism is going to, at every every day, uh, any moment, uh, any time, is going to be variable. Um, and that's that's the norm variability is the norm and so um, these are just again a little bit more of a, of a guardrail, um and they and they allow us to make sure we're checking off boxes appropriately before we start to manipulate any of the the intensity velocity uh frequency of, of movement or exercises so the first phase is um what we, what we would call homeostasis restoration Basically, that means how do we restore, quote-unquote, normalcy to the system? Uh, How do we allow people to regulate stress a little bit better? Uh, Well, if I'm already in this uh, state of high sympathetic because of a potential injury or pain, I'm likely going to have less movement options, which, again, is one of the principles that we discussed earlier. So uh, what I want to do is say, how do I get them back to this parasympathetic state so that uh, when I start to stress them, I can actually go up. Uh, I think Michelle Boland kind of uses the analogy of like an elevator. Um, if I have uh, one through 10, if I'm already at, at nine, then I'm, I can do one or two things. I can. Only go, I can only go to 10 and it's not going to be a lot of room, but, or I can go through the roof and that's going to have negative consequences as well. So homeostasis restoration is trying to say, how do I make sure that I get someone all the way back down to the, the bottom floor so now I can escalate up um, nine more levels uh, and, and be able to tolerate and accept stress? Uh, so clinically that looks like restoring range of motion. Um, being able to emulate and have locomotive capabilities without any uh, considerable deviations. Um, being able to have, um, for lack of better words, uh, activation to the specific tissue. I'm thinking if we're thinking of a ACL uh, reconstruction, then I want to have uh, observable quadriceps uh, contraction. That's volitional. Um, so that's the homeostasis restoration. And then you know, from there we look at athletic foundation. Athletic Foundation is going to be where we're trying to restore uh, and, re- and provide people back the, the options for uh, movement patterns such as push, pull, hinge, squat, rotate, uh, and, and a little bit more of the locomotive patterns such as marching. Uh, we, we might start to get into some skipping as well because we're looking at this from an athletic standpoint. We know that eventually we want to get to to sprinting. So we're already starting to bridge the gap with some technical proficiency. um, When we're looking at the hierarchy of sprinting considerations, we can start to implement that early early on. Um, So those are gonna be really where we're just getting body weight, capacity, and competency um, through more of their metabolic uh, conditioning circuits um, where you could do, you know, sled push, um, goblet squat, and some kind of a, a upper extremity um, pulling exercise as well, just a general conditioning for the entire body globally, um, but still making sure we're not losing sight of the localized tissue that um, they're in the clinic for. Um, and then after the athletic foundation, we kind of transition over into the biomotor integration. This is kind of where we're really, really getting after it. Uh, so we're thinking more of the, the output, Um, we're thinking of how do we start to use a little bit more, of I would say conjugate training, uh, where we have complementary qualities that we're going to be focusing on. So we might focus a little bit more on on truly building strength, but we can also implement some power with that as well because we know with the upcoming phase um, that we need to uh, make sure that that person can not only exude power, but also tolerate um, the power output that they're going to be uh, displaying Um, because if i if i have a lot of power that i'm dispersing can i also tolerate the input thinking of absorption versus production um so biomotor integration is going to be a lot of uh, the the strength power speed we're going to get into some some sprinting Um, with sprinting there's certain considerations that i think about uh, in regard to what are the the prerequisites to, to be able to get into sprinting. I'm looking at localized tissue capacity of Gastroxoleus complex um, because it's going to be a huge uh, a huge muscle to allow you to have force production or, or or be able to propel for it. But also, it's going to help out with dampening forces with ground contact time, especially the soleus. Um, I'm looking at their overall um, unilateral competency. Um, I'm looking at their ability to have. Gone through the continuum of plyometrics, so can they go from a jump to a bound to a hop to a uh, a pogo to a single leg pogo, um, and then have they gone through some of the locomotive, uh, the, the locomotive escalating demands of stressors? So we're looking at can they go from marching to uh, skipping to a little bit more of the sprint specific skips that are still, yes, looking at the technical proficiency from a posture locomotive standpoint, but also we're, we're still stressing the tissues, but just in a reduced velocity or a tissue excursion standpoint. Um, and so that's, that's the, the biomotor integration. And then lastly, we look at uh, going through the phase of performance actualization. So that is where we have this cognitive perceptual ability to uh, be able to handle fluctuations and making decisions on the fly. So it's less react. It's less anticipatory, more reactive. Uh, it's more unpredictable. Um, it's more change of direction oriented. It's going to be something that really emulates the, the task that they're going to be exposed to when they return to their specific or chosen uh, sport. So for them, what variables can we manipulate uh, that really make sure that the the biomotor part replicates what they're going to be immersed in, but also the bioenergetic part. So it might be a little bit more uh, speed strength. It might be a little bit more a lactic or lactic for a lot of sports, especially field sport. Um, Or, you know, for me, a lot of the track athletes that I work with as well um, are going to be a little bit more of like the the, um, a lactic and lactic. Uh, Obviously, it can be higher. Uh, or excuse me, can be a, a little bit lower uh, as well if they are more of the middle distance um, runner or someone that has like this uh, this sport that doesn't require a lot of of speed. And uh, but I would I would argue that most sports will need that. And so those are, those are the phases: uh, homeostasis, restoration, athletic foundation, biomotor integration, and performance actualization. And, and when you look at it, even with that health performance continuum, they really are kind of in line with that. We start with health. Let's just make sure we get the aerobic capacity. We restore competency. Um, we increase their confidence. Uh, they have variability and they have this general physical preparation. Uh, they're doing things that are sustainable. And then when we kind of slowly shift the spectrum to uh, now it's performance. So we're looking more at some things such as uh, it might be a little bit more rigidity there because again it's very specific to what it is that they're going to be performing not rigidity in regards to the expression or the um the execution of the task but more so rigid in uh, the approach that we're doing in order to um the approach that we're doing in in, in order to uh, be able to emulate the the task um and we're looking at things that might be a little bit more unsustainable um, because we know sprinting isn't unsustainable. But we've laid down the foundation with the, the prior phases. we really focusing on health.
0: What are you using to progress from phase to phase? Is that where your key performance indicators come in? Are, are, are those things that, that you're assessing and appraising session to session? And are there times where somebody has seemingly progressed to the, a, another spot on the continuum, but have now regressed based on many, many factors? But how are you appraising that?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I, the big thing is it's not really – I'll say i I'll say, assessing the session, yes, we are uh, assessing and appraising how they're performing Uh and that's going to be with any, I kind of, I tell my students this too, um, every follow-up, every session is going to be almost like a, to a certain degree a re-eval where we're reassessing the individual. So every exercise is, is to a degree a test. Um, to see how they're performing. So a lot of people think we have to have this formal testing in order to determine whether or not someone can uh, proceed to the next stage or have their their stresses manipulated. Um, formal testing is great. We, we need that because it holds us accountable as clinicians. But we can also look at the exercise uh, that they're performing as well. Um, but I would say, you know, I do like to use specific um, parameters and key performance indicators for whatever sport it is so i'm, I'm thinking of, of like a needs analysis first is going to be what, what is the sport uh what is the prior uh history of injury um and, and what it is what is it that they already have and what is it that they that they need um at that time in order to bridge the gap from where they are to where they're going to be or where they want to be um and so if we're thinking of athletic foundation i want to i want to Make sure prior to or homeostasis restoration prior to moving to athletic foundation, um, do they have the ability to ambulate, can they navigate uh, and negotiate going up and down steps? Um, do they need uh, any type of uh, assistive device such as crutches, crutches if they if they still need those and have those parameters set, then they're not ready to rigorously be immersed in the athletic foundation phase because we still have some um, accommodation of uh, movement that might not be as beneficial when we get into that, that phase of really loading the tissue globally. Um, and so then when I look at athletic foundation, that might be something to where at the end of that phase, we're looking at things such as um, maybe a Y balance test. I'm um, just looking at triplanar uh, competency uh, and orientation and confidence on one, one limb. Um, we might, uh, look at things such as just overall, hey, can you perform, um, and again, it depends for the sport, um, but if, if I'm looking at a split squat or, or a goblet squat, a certain percentage of their body weight, because we know in the biomotor integration phase, we're going to start to implement some, some plyometrics. Uh, and I want to make sure they can handle an, uh, a certain amount of external load appropriately prior to uh, having that much force at that velocity go through the tissue with plyometrics. Um, if, we, if we go through the performance uh, or the, the yeah, performance actualization phase, which is the last phase, that's going to be more of like your your 5105 5, 10, 5 um, is what you're looking at for, for those individuals. But hopefully prior to that, you've done um, some other testing that on their last day or their their day of discharge or their day of getting back into competition or at least practice, um, you've already, checked off a lot of boxes. We've done some hot testing um, as well. Now, a lot of people will say, "Oh, well, well, well hot testing or limb symmetry index isn't uh, necessarily that great. That's that's very true and that's fair. Um, but if we just throw our hands up and say, well, nothing matters and, and all the research shows that the testing doesn't really give us all the answers, then we we'll, well, what do you, are you just going to train and just not do anything at all and not be accountable? I think we we can have some. Uh, we need some something that the profession kind of uh, agrees on, um, or something to to say, hey. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to see um, what the presentation looks like. And then from there, I can better triage the situation uh, and come up with the appropriate intervention based off of the information that I just got um, from, again, maybe a hop test or a wide balance test um, or from uh, some of the strength testing that that, uh, we would look at as well or single leg uh, triplanar competencies Um, You know, those those are the things that I'm looking at for key performance indicators or the needs analysis within each particular phase.
0: The key seems to be having objective, having measures and qualifying those with what you're seeing subjectively with the athlete and also probably what they're, you know... um, giving you subjectively you know with the feedback that they're providing you so all of those things taken into account to make the determination of moving left or right on the continuum my criticisms with with our fa- with our models and and different uh, rehab phases in general which i i subscribe to phases because their models they're reductionist models by definition mm-hmm. we we're reducing the the you know we're we're trying to make it look good on paper first this has got to make sense to me conceptually because that's what that's what a phase is when you look at it on paper it makes complete sense the then the issue clinically is the variability of of their presentation on the day to day and oh i thought we progressed to this phase but now they've regressed a little bit and so we're not actually at that phase and and if you look at it in a very deterministic way Like, once you reach a new phase, the old phase is in the past, and it it no longer applies. Or we're only determining when to progress to the next phase based on time. After four to six weeks, you're going to be at this phase. Or after four months, you're now at this phase. That's where I think we run into problems with these things. and. I was real. I really was re- interested to hear what you had to say there, I th- and I think that the take-home points are really, really important. That these are conce- it's a conceptual framework, but it's a continuum, and it's fluid. Because you mentioned allostasis earlier, mm-hmm. and allostasis is, if we can still the definition down there, is stability in the presence of change. Mm-hmm. So these things are really variable and I, I like the I like the, the take-home points of theirs you've got your key performance indicators progress in complexity themselves as you go up so it's like you went from one can you walk to mm-hmm. two you know down the line you've got these more complex integrated tests and so that's kind of what we're looking at and and you accumulate the person accumulates uh, fitness and they're they're Going to be passing the older tests more consistently, but I guess my my big point here is for any of the listeners is it's not going to be black and white. There's going to be some there's going to be some steps forward and a little bit of steps back and maybe a lot of steps back and then a little step forward. But when you look at overall trends, they're going to be going in the right direction. It's just not linear. Well, yeah, it,
1: yeah, yeah, that's the, the, the trajectory is going to be overall yeah upward. But there's going to be, you know, uh, ups and downs throughout the the entire process. But like we mentioned earlier, as long as we set forth that expectation and that education, uh, I think that the athlete is, is is a little bit more secure in that process. And they understand that. And so they don't become uh, they don't become pessimistic in, in the process. They keep that optimism that we've tried to cultivate at the, at the from the beginning throughout the entire uh, entirety of the. The process from the rehab, rehabbing or reconditioning standpoint,
0: and that's the biggest thing. I think we, as clinicians, we see it as linear. It's on the page; these are the these are the phases. It's gonna it's gonna go in this order. And if we educate the athlete, like these are the phases that we're gonna be working on, they might think it's linear too. So, to your point, it's it's just like see, so you set that expectation right up front. This is where we're headed, but it's gonna be it's gonna be an up and down. It's going to be an up and down right. road
1: to get there. Yeah, we're going to have some speed bumps and some roadblocks and things like that. But we know how to. We're going to know how to navigate through the noise because we have our principles in our back pocket.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's really, really great. Well, we could talk about these things for a while. I want to save a little bit for the webinar. Um, <laughs>
1: again, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Dive again, in a little deeper on there.
0: Yes, and and again, that's coming up. It's September eighth. Uh, Jared, do I have yes. that right? Eight nine Okay. I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, Jared, where can people learn more about you? Where can they connect with you? What are some of the things you got coming up?
1: Yeah, I, uh, people can connect with me on uh, Instagram, Dr. J Fit Boyd uh, is, is my handle. Um, I'm actually working on or attempting to work on a, on a website right now just a uh, coming up with just blogs and thoughts and, and things that I, uh, I have like a, a little, little journal or a little book with a lot of just stuff that I dump in there, but I want to actually make it come to fruition and, and start to, to write a little bit more, um, online. And so I figured oh, I'll go with the website. Um, but then I'm also working on more of like a resource manual currently, um, that has, Topics ranging from stress science, pain science, um, energy systems development, sprinting, um, all those different variables with um, blogs, uh, key research articles that I think fit those particular topics, key people in that field. And I'm going to be sending that out to anybody that uh, provides me with their email. So that should be done hopefully within the next two weeks. Um, And then from there, you know, hopefully one day I'll be able to. Um, start doing some continuing education courses, talking about how do we uh, integrate physical preparation into the, the clinical setting uh, and, and making things really look and appear and be a little bit more athletically driven for the athletic clientele that we're seeing as opposed to um, mini band, BOSU ball uh, kind of uh, exercises. Things are a little bit more pragmatic in nature.
0: Yeah, That sounds amazing. We'll be on the lookout for that. It's out It's out in the world now. So you got to, that sounds like a big project.
1: But only yeah, six it, it, people. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Only six people. So the, it's not that much pressure. But
1: Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's pretty easy. It's not that. Okay.
0: That's great, man. Uh, well, thanks so much for being on the show. Really, really looking forward to the webinar. This was a really useful conversation, I think, it is going to help a lot of people. And I, I definitely learned a lot. So we appreciate it.
1: I appreciate you guys.
0: We will, and other Jared, 1R Jared, thanks for being on. Budget Jared.
1: (laughs) Oh, happy to do it, man. This is really throwing me off, having the
0: two Jareds. I I can tell, I know. (laughs) It was fun.
1: (laughs) That was great. I appreciate you guys.
2: Yeah. We'll talk soon. All
1: right. Have a good one.
2: Peace.